Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make. But don't say we didn't warn you. Do, 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 do. Oh, it's your turn to say the opening mm-hmm, stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Fine, I guess I'll let you have it. I mean, I guess you don't have a choice. I guess you do have a choice. It's, but It's in the text. <laughs> the text is a lie and nothing is real. It's true. And yet you're using it to claim your opening. <laughs> I mean, I copy pasted, so... Remember when I used to be very circumspect about switching back and forth every fucking week? Yeah. Then I entered the third year of my PhD. That's real. Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock, and together we are Hamlet. And this week we're talking about the third part of Henry the Sixth. Woohoo! I know Jess is so excited. Can you all hear it in her voice? Um, I'm excited. I'll be excited enough for both of us. It's fine. Thank you Someone so much. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. Every week on this podcast, we discuss a different play by our favorite guy, William Philip Shakespeare, at what we like to call the 101 level. Philip, so French. Is that a nod to our French friends? (laughs) No, it's because I was texting my Uncle Philip while I was prepping this. Awesome. (laughs) That's great. Uh, Yeah, so 101 level is the introductory stuff. It's everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and some cool stuff you're going to get nowhere else, like our opinions. But as we do every week, we're going to kick it off with the device of the week. So... Because we're word nerds, each week we draw a random device from our handy-dandy rhetorical device flashcards. Yes, for actors and scholars, knowing rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. And basically, it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. Draw a card, Hyacinth. It's funny you mention Hyacinths because I just put some out on my porch and they smell amazing and they look really pretty um we are down to our very last card today it is it it is that lovely greek word stickamythia (gasps) stickamythia how did stickamythia end up last i don't know it's the it's the luck of the draw literally the luck of the draw good one to go out on it is yeah it is stickamythia okay i'm gonna spell it y'all ready S-T-I-C-H-O-M-Y-T-H-I-A, stichomythia. It means the rapid alternation of short lines or partial lines between two or more characters. In other words, everybody, uh, you'll see this in Taming of the Shrew. You will see this... uh, Oh, and a, and a lot of characters that have like back and forth mm-hmm. um, and everybody gets one iambic line and they just alternate <clears throat> and they tend to play on each other's wordplay as the stichomythia continues. So, for example, from the two gentlemen of Verona, Julia and Lucetta, Julia says, and wouldst thou have me cast my love on him? Lucetta, I, if you thought your love not cast away, Julia, why he of all the rest hath never moved me, Lucetta, yet he of all the rest, I think best loves ye. Julia, 
His little speaking shows his love but small. Uh, but small. <laughs> Lucetta, fire that's closest kept burns most of all. Duh, 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 duh. It's like a tennis match. It's a verbal tennis match. That's what stichomythia is. So when you see those little short lines, uh, one iambic pentameter line back and forth between characters, you know you found stichomythia. Yep. Da, 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 da. And that concludes our deck of cards. Yeah. It's kind of a momentous occasion. We're going to not make anything of that, clearly. Okay. I mean, so- I mean <laughs> I'm interested that it got us, you know, yeah. three full seasons, basically. Yep. Yep. We'll have to do something special and different for our last episode next week. I know. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. It's now time for your Burbage Break with Master Master Hamlet. So today I want to talk about digital renaissance editions, um, which are more or less what they sound like. Uh, so the digital renaissance editions publishes electronic scholarly editions of early English drama and texts of related interest from the late medieval morality plays and Tudor interludes, um, occasional entertainments, pageants, academic and closet drama, and the plays of the commercial London theaters through to the drama of the Civil War and Interregnum. Um, It was inspired by the Internet Shakespeare editions, and it uses the same publication platform. So when you go to the website, you can find editions, which will include photo facsimiles and diplomatic transcriptions of early textual witnesses uh, alongside a modern spelling text with full critical apparatus and generous introductory and supplementary materials. Um, It's a really cool project. It's run by uh, the University of Victoria in Canada, British Columbia, Canada. All of their editions are peer-reviewed. They're scholarly editions by Shakespeare, Shakespeare's predecessors, Shakespeare's contemporaries, people who came way after Shakespeare. And it's really cool because it's dedicated to expanding the range of early English drama that's available for study and teaching and performance. The project also includes a performance database comprising a growing collection of multimedia materials related to early English drama on stage and screen, as well as a critical companion of freshly commissioned peer-reviewed essays on the plays and their historical, cultural, social, political, and theatrical contexts. So that's the project. It's really cool. We'll throw a link up on the website for you. Uh, But it's digitalrenaissance.uvic.ca if you don't want to go to the link. I I use them all the time. I use them all the time uh, because they've got stuff that you can't find elsewhere. Yeah, I think uh, at SAA, I met one of the guys that creates that. You absolutely He's Australian. He's Brett. Yeah, Brett. There we go. Brett. Brett Greatly Hirsch. Not to be confused with Brett from Flight of the Concords. Not to be confused with that person, no. Girl, you got to watch some more TV. <laughs> uh, with what time? I know. I know. You can, how about you write my dissertation and I'll watch TV? Sound good? No. Yeah, I no, don't think doesn't. so. <laughs> Fine. Um, you have the high ground. Okay. Yeah, so the, the other, the last thing I want to say about. Uh, DRE is that Brett, who I think is in charge, um, he's the one that the the person over there that I know the best uh, does incredible, like incredible artwork with 
um, early modern woodcuts and and prints. Um, and he'll take something and sort of update it and amazing. So right now, sitting behind my corner, behind my corner, behind my computer, uh, I have a like a postcard size image of a woman being burned at the stake and a bunch of soldiers guarding her. And it says, well behaved women seldom get ballads. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I, I like that. Yeah. And I've got. <laughs> That's great. Um, I've got two more prints up in my office and one is uh, one is a, a woman riding a man, not sexually, but like a beast. And it says, nevertheless, she persisted. Nice. Um, and the other one is uh, a, an image of an early modern printing press. Um, and it says moves like jaggered, which is a deep cut joke for people who know things yeah. <laughs> about yeah. printing in the early modern period and also that question mark maroon five song yes it, it is a maroon five song. okay yeah it's like See, I, yeah i know i know the the early modern part of that joke and slightly less the modern part of that joke <laughs> that's hilarious yeah Those um, are really good yeah and then there was there's one that i this is probably able to be cut pretty easy but um there's one that's bright yellow and it's got like a a dude with some lemons and it says when life hands you lemons make poison lemonade and i framed that and sent it to molly of course she's the lemon lady she's the lemon lady yeah yeah that's awesome yeah right well digital renaissance editions there it is yeah check them out That was your Burbage Break with Master Master Hamlet. That is the last time you will hear me play those stupid drums. It's not stupid. This I, I love my drum. You're right. I mean, yeah. We'll probably do some more history plays. Yeah, just not Shakespeare history plays. You're right. You're right. I um, He well. did not invent the genre. What? I know. Way to ruin my day. Okay. I know. <laughs> anyway, that's uh, that's our signal for it's family tree time, and this is the third part of Henry the Sixth. Basically, I'm just going to quickly catch you up that yes, the Yorks, aka the White Rose, and the Lancasters, aka the Red Rose, still totally hate each other. Uh, primogeniture, that's the son of the firstborn son of the firstborn son, whatever, is still the issue at hand. The Yorks claim primogeniture and therefore the throne through Richard of York's mom. And the Lancasters claim it through John of Gaunt, which is a later son of Edward III, who, as you remember from our two Henry VI episode, had seven sons. Uh, and where we left off in the last play, the Yorks had seized the throne and were about to follow the Lancasters to London to finish them off. And that's really all you need to know. And if you want something more in depth, go and listen to our one Henry six episode or even further back in our one Henry four episode where I really break it down. But I just don't have the energy anymore. I've run out of steam. And you know what? It's a trilogy for a reason so that I don't have to catch you up so much. And that's that. Okay, cool. moving on to our five-word unhelpful titles. And this one, I did a bit of stickomythia, actually, because I saw Jess's title and then I played off of it. So actually, Jess, it would help me if you said yours first this week. I don't want to. What? I don't want to set you up for this terrible joke. Oh, come on. I set you up for your terrible summary jokes every week. I know. All right. So Give my me this one. Word... 
unhelpful title is Henry Dies in This One. Mine is Dickie Rises in This One. Uh, You're welcome. Get out. (laughs) Moving on. Why is this place so goddamn popular? It's not. It's definitely not. But it kind of is. But it's not. I mean, you know, amongst many in our Shakespeare circle, I I think people like this one better than the other two. Uh, I've heard generally. (laughs) um, I, you know, I've generally heard that as the consensus because, you know, certain characters make their way into the play that most other people generally like, which is Richard III, uh, including Richard III himself. He's called Richard of Gloucester or Dick or Dickie uh, in this play. So he makes he makes uh, he literally like rises into power and gets into position for what he does in Richard III. So there's that. So, I mean, you know, and there's battles and there's the whole like three sons, weird scene, the premonition, whatever. And there's the fall of Margaret. I mean, it's a sensational, and I mean that kind of literally, it's full of like sensational things. Um, it's a sensational play. So, and it's the culmination of, of that trilogy of Henry VI. So I think generally people like it more, but still none of the Henry VI's are very popular, like at all. So there's that. Yeah, you know, and and you will very rarely, as I said about two Henry six, you will rarely see this one by itself. Um, it's either done in rep with the other two, or it's conflated with the other two, um, or conflated with one or two. I mean, like, it's very rarely done as a standalone play uh, without one of its cousins in the mix with it. All right, so let's talk about some dramatis personae, but only the really important ones. And uh, some of these names are going to sound real familiar because again, it's a trilogy. So let's do it. Yeah. Uh, so we'll start with Margaret of Anjou, who is the Queen of England. We've got her weak king husband, Henry VI, who's the King of England. There's also uh, Richard Plantagenet, the Duke of York. He was in the last one. Right. Uh, his eldest son, Edward Plantagenet, who is later crowned Edward IV, King of England. His second son is George Plantagenet, who later becomes the Duke of Clarence. Yes, who you'll recall dies drowned in a Malmsey butt in Richard III. Mm-hmm. Um, his third son is Richard, uh, later the Duke of Gloucester, later, 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 Richard III. His fourth son is his fourth young. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Good job typing, Jessica. His fourth young. His fourth young, <laughs> the Earl of Rutland. Uh, then we have, of course, the Earl of Warwick, the kingmaker, who topsy-turvy twists and turns changes sides a lot. Yeah, there's the Lady Elizabeth Grey, a widow, who later becomes Queen Elizabeth when she marries Edward. Right. And then there's King Louis, or Louis, of France. I mean, it's literally spelled Louis in the text with an E-W. So, so. anglicized. Yes, because we hate the French. We hate the French. So we don't pronounce their words. Sorry, I keep forgetting. I mean, it's like you've never read about Charles the Dolphin being a proper man. Um, There's also Clifford. He was in the last one. In the last one, he was young Clifford. Now he's just Clifford. Right, because his dad died. Uh, And then there's Margaret and Henry's son, Prince Edward. 
Yeah, so there's like another Prince Edward. Not Jesus. Not really in the summary, except for at the end. Right. And never by name. So yeah. I was well, like, yeah, we'll stick it in. You know, he, like many kids in Shakespeare's history plays, like make a little appearance, they get a little mouthy with their elders, and then they mm-hmm. go away. Mm-hmm. Like, that's mm-hmm. kind of all they do. All righty. You ready? It's summary time. So we will now summarize the third part of Henry VI for you in a segment that this week we're calling Just Like the Actual War of the Roses, a lot happens in this summary. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. Not my best title, but (laughs) I'm a little titled out. It's the end of the semester. It is. Yeah. Okay. I'm ready when you are. All right. Let's do it. In Act One, York takes the throne. Henry enters to negotiate. Henry and York come to an agreement that lets Henry remain king, but the throne will pass to York on Henry's death. The king's supporters are annoyed with Henry's supplication and weakness, and they desert him to join Margaret and her army because she is strong and powerful. Woof. Margaret declares herself divorced from Henry until he reinstates their son as heir because she's a badass bitch, I guess. York's sons, Richard and Edward, argue with their father and encourage him to break his agreement with Henry and take the throne now. York finally agrees, but then they learn that Margaret's army is approaching and they have to fight. Clifford captures York's youngest son, Rutland, and kills him. Margaret and Clifford capture and kill York. In Act 2, three suns appear in the sky, and Edward Plantagenet interprets this as a sign that the three sons of York should unite and be triumphant. Because premonitions... A messenger delivers news of York's, that's old York's, death. The brothers swear revenge, and Warwick promises to make Edward king. A meeting between both sides goes poorly, with Edward demanding that Henry kneel to him and Richard arguing with Clifford over the deaths of their father and his brother. A battle ensues. Henry wanders off alone, wishing he was just a shepherd instead of a king, which is pretty on brand for him. He watches two sets of soldiers loot bodies they have killed. One soldier realizes he has killed his father. The other soldier realizes he has killed his son. Oh, it's like metaphors or something. Henry is brokenhearted and wishes that he had the power to stop everything. Margaret arrives to collect him before fleeing as their go- their cause is nearly lost. I almost said their ghost. As their cause is nearly lost. Clifford has been shot through the neck with an arrow and dies. Edward, George, Richard, and Warwick desecrate Clifford's body as revenge for what he did to Rutland. Warwick announces his plan to crown Edward King and then marry him to the French King's sister. Edward uh, awards George the Dukedom of Clarence and gives Richard the Dukedom of Gloucester. In Act 3, Henry is captured by gamekeepers because, dear, (laughs) Um, Edward becomes smitten with Lady Elizabeth Grey. In France, Margaret is having really good luck getting the French King Louis on their side until Warwick arrives. Louis is happy to let his sister marry Edward, but then a messenger arrives that Edward has married Lady Grey. Warwick is furious and immediately switches his loyalties back to Margaret. This will have no repercussions for anyone ever. Obviously, this is a great plan. Um, And then they agree that Margaret's son will marry Warwick's daughter. Yeah, because being a turncoat is totally cool, right? So cool. In Act 4, back in England, things aren't going so well for Edward. His supporters are angry about his marriage and concerned that the alliance between about the alliance between Rorick, Warwick and Margaret. Edward is dismissive of their anxieties until George deserts him as well to join Warwick. The common people are on Warwick's side as well, and Warwick and George plan to capture Edward. Warwick overthrows Edward on the battlefield and plans to re-crown Henry. That's, yes, Henry VI. Edward's pregnant wife takes sanctuary to protect their unborn children 
child. Edward escapes captivity with Richard's help. Warwick frees Henry, but Henry doesn't really want to be king anymore. He names Warwick and George joint protectors of the realm. And Edward amasses an army and attacks. He takes Henry prisoner again. In Act 5, George rejoins his brothers, Richard and Edward. Edward injures Warwick in battle and leaves him to die. Edward captures Margaret and her son. Then he and his brothers kill the prince. Richard goes to the tower to kill Henry. When that's done, Richard plans to kill everyone who stands in his way of getting the throne, including his brothers. Edward shows off his newborn son to his supporters and looks forward to a peaceful reign. The end. I mean, yep. yeah, it's kind of a Lion King Yeah, moment. it is a bit of a Lion King moment right there at the end. It's it's pretty great. <laughs> yep. I think it's great. Yeah. I mean, someone has to think it's great. That it someone is me. me. <laughs> All right. So let's talk some cool shit about this text that Jess doesn't like. <laughs> yeah. I do like the textual history of this text. Okay. Let's so hear it. just it's a quick and dirty. Here's, here's how we got this text that we use today. Um, so the true tragedy of Richard, Duke of York, and the death of the good King Henry VI, with the whole contention between the two houses, Lancaster and York, as it was sundry times acted by the right honorable the Earl of Pembroke, his servants, was published in octavo in 1595. Um, I feel like we talked briefly about this uh, in the in the two Henry VI episode, um, but an octavo is smaller than a quarto because it's been folded one more time. That's all that is. And then in 1600, the second quarto was published. There is no first quarto. There's just the octavo. But it's the second quarto anyway, because it's the second text that was printed and it's in quarto form. Okay. Um, for a long time, Q2 was thought to be an exact reprint of the octavo, but it's definitely not. Uh Q2 introduces a bunch of relineation that fixes irregular verse lines in the octavo, and that's what that does. In 1619, we get the third quarto, which is titled The Whole Contention Between the Two Famous Houses, Lancaster and York, with the tragical ends of the good Duke Humphrey, Richard Duke of York, and King Henry VI, divided into two parts and newly corrected and enlarged, written by William Shakespeare, Gent. Um... So what this text did was it put two and three Henry six together into one text. It's two plays, but in one quarto form. It's also part of the Pavier quartos or the Pavier quartos, depending on how French you want to be, uh, which were a, a, a series of printed plays that were probably intended to have bound, been bound together to form a collection. Um, the other plays printed for Pavier were Q3 Pericles, Q2 Merry Wives, Q2 Merchant, Q2 Midsummer, Q2 Lear, and Q3 Henry V, as well as two plays that have been misattributed to Shakespeare, Q2 Yorkshire Tragedy, and Q2 The First Part of John Oldcastle. That's a whole separate bag of worms. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about the Pavier quarters, which are fucking fascinating, we have a link. We'll throw it up in the, in the show notes. Um, but it's Folgerpedia which is like the Wikipedia done by the Folger. It's amazing. Also, Folgerpedia, shout out to them. So this text, the Q3 text, corrects some genealogical inaccuracies in York's speech about Edward III's seven sons and adds 11 new lines. Fascinating. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. What? Corrects, though? Does it actually correct or... 
does it actually correct the genealogical inaccuracies? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, just checking. I mean, you know, like, like, uh, what's his face? You know, um, Bowdler went through and corrected Shakespeare oh, by oh, like, Oh, I see. I see what you're saying by, you know, taking out the dirty words. So like, is this, I couldn't tell if you meant like that he literally corrected it and made it right or not. Yes. Yeah. Uh, corrected in his opinion or actually corrected well I, I don't know who's responsible for the corrections okay i don't know if it was pavier or oh okay yeah whoever whoever made the corrections um made it so that in the text the genealogical inaccuracies are no longer inaccurate okay yeah. okay that's yeah. a real thing okay that's Thank a real you. thing that's, that's yeah. all i meant um and then finally in 1623 we get the folio uh, which gives us the third part of Henry VI with the death of the Duke of York. And it includes 1,000 lines that are not in the octavo. 1,000. Wow. That's half the goddamn play. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Uh-huh. So in, uh, in the space of 28 years, we, we have essentially three different plays right we have the octavo we've got q2 slash q3 and then we've got the folio um and and from from start to finish we get a thousand new lines uh what is new i don't know this is about where i stopped digging into the textual history because full disclosure if you haven't figured it out already i don't care about this play i don't i generally don't like the histories just full stop um, but the histories I do like are the weird ones like Edward the third and King John. Okay. Those are, those are my jam. Um, but that's, I don't know. That's the textual transmission. It's wild. That's what I have to say. So kind of cool. Why don't you talk about some production-y stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, usual rules apply for every history play. Um, make the history clear, you know, um, I'm not going to go too in depth about that because I've preached preached about it a lot but like same rules apply here because it's still a history play and people are still going to get fucking confused um also i mean you have a really fun opportunity here um i know richard gloucester makes a brief appearance in two henry six but this is the this is the play where you really get um to figure out how you want to introduce him into the world and maybe carry through his characterization and or storyline into Richard the third. If you were, if you were making this play part of a sequence leading up to Richard the third, which is really exciting. So you get to figure out who he is um, and how his disability, how you want to convey his disability and all of that stuff. You get to make those choices about Richard the third in this play, as well as in Richard, the actual third. Uh, so there's that question. How are you going to deal with that three sons stuff, son? <laughs> um, if you're, a, <laughs> I have great jokes today. Do you want me to explain it? Would that make it funnier? It would. Actually. So like, Can you okay. So that? I'm, yeah. So I'm making a play on the word son, S U N, okay. and son, S O N, oh, okay, and the colloquialism. Yeah, yeah, and the colloquialism of adding son at the end of a sentence to be like son. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like a punctuation. Um, and that's there's three of them, three sons, S U N S, and that's why it's funny. So okay. anyway, see, I get it now. It's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. See, I knew you'd come Fuck around. 
Um, so anyway, there's, yeah, there's that whole scene in act two where the three sons of York are standing on stage and, oh my goodness, we're suddenly on some Star Wars planet where there are actually three sons and we're looking at them. Um, so if you're at a theater where you can do that, like with technology, do you have the choice of whether you want to convey that? Or if you just want it to be like off in the distance over the audience, which is what um, my playhouse generally does because we don't do technology. So so there's that. There's that kind of special effect that you get to play with. Um, also, make sure, and I'm sure this goes without saying as well, but make sure you cast a bomb actor as Margaret. Just like you need a powerhouse person who can carry that through because she goes through. Man, she's on a roller coaster this, this play. And... Uh, she has to do some pretty despicable things and then despicable things are in turn enacted upon her. So just like cast a strong actor for that. Um, if you like battles, you get a ton of them in this play and like little skirmishes and like uh, all kinds of conflict happening here. And and again, like some kind of cool opportunities for blood effects. There's that part where Margaret wipes Rutland's blood on York's face and then kills York or executes him. So, so there's that, um, and there's betrayal, and Warwick switches sides many, many times. So, like, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff for me. Uh, I, I think maybe for actors, that's fun to do. Is is really, I guess, where my head is at. Like, you need a good Margaret, and you need a great Richard. You need, you know, three actors who really gel as brothers. Um, you're you're gonna need. You just need a really strong cast who's willing to play and get played. <laughs> I'm so jokey today. <laughs> Sorry, my caffeine is just kicking in. So anyway, um, yeah, let, let your actors go wild in this one because it's fun. I think it's fun to do. You're welcome. Cool. Shall we play a game? <clears throat> yeah. What we don't know what that game is, play? but we're going to play it. Mystery game. So we're going to do Jess Fails at Line Roulette, which is a, uh, a mixture of two of our favorite games, Line Roulette and Jess Fails at Shakespeare, wherein I'm going to have a line, but I'm going to fail at saying why it's important because fuck this play. So that line is not Act 6. It's always fucking Act 6. Act 3. Okay. Scene 6. How many scenes are there in Act 3? No idea. Nope, there's only three scenes in Act 3. All right, try that again. Act 3, scene 2. Okay, 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 okay. okay. All right, all right. Scene 2. Line 62. Okay, so this is the scene wherein Edward is wooing the Lady Elizabeth Grey. Ooh. And line 62 is Lady Elizabeth Grey. She says, my love till death, my humble thanks, my prayers. Okay. So. My love till death, my humble thanks, my prayers. Yep. Um, all, right. all right. Here we go. So this line is about love and honor and respect and duty. And this play is at its core about duty and um i think i think what what is happening here is that really this is this is shakespeare's poop play um 
And so all of this talk about duty means that Shakespeare is brilliantly uh, signaling to the reader and to the audience and to the actor that this play is shit and um, that this that this poop this play is about poop this line is about poop this play is poop oh my god and- stop talking <laughs> yes it's the it's the little known poop through line that shakespeare subtly just gives to us one little turd at a time i so wish you hadn't <laughs> muted your microphone <laughs> Oh my god. I mean, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I think that might be the best critical analysis that I've done mm. in my entire life. <laughs> Indeed. You know what? I would really love it if one of our scholar friends from SAA would just like take that close reading and run with it. I would really love to hear a paper on this one day. Like, uh-huh. you know, we joke that there's like, you know, the, what do you call it? The garden, the vegetable plays. There's like the all the vegetable plays. Well, now there's all the fecal plays, you know? Yeah. There's definitely the scatological plays, mm-hmm, if you will. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, if we want to put a more scholarly twist on it. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, I think you've found a whole new subgenre. Obviously. This is, is how I'm going to make my name in the field. Yeah. Jess Hamlet, <laughs> scatological play expert. <laughs> yep. Well, folks, you're welcome. There it is. Um, oh, also, I meant to mention this earlier. Um, if anybody watches... Uh, the White Queen, that series that was on Stars. I think Netflix has it now. I think it's a little more accessible now if you don't have a Stars subscription. But basically, that series is the entire. It's Henry the Sixth, Part Three, and Richard the Third. It's like those two together. So if you get a little confused about people, watch that. Um, it's definitely not Shakespeare's version. Like they're much kinder to Richard generally, but it is helpful to get things like sorted out and get the the events. Um, especially with Edward and and uh, Jane Grey, or is it? It's not Jane Grey. Elizabeth Grey, wrong wrong queen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, all of that stuff that like that series kicks off with their affair and like all of this Warwick back and forthness. So like, if people wanted a crossover for that. That's there. That's available. I love that series. It's really good. Uh, all right, so some shakes booble gossip. <laughs> uh huh. Shakes buble gossip. Sure. Shakes bubble bowl gossip. Sure. Shakes bibble gossip. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Um, first on the docket is uh, this article that I found in the Washingtonian titled, Is Shakespeare's DNA Hiding in the Folgers Library Vault? Question mark. Project Dust Bunny aims to find out. Uh, and it's a whole article. I will throw the link up on our landing page for this episode about uh, DNA testing. Uh, they're like, there's a the picture on the article is like a a purple gloved hand swabbing the interior of a book for DNA. Um, which I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense. You know, our our bodies shed skin cells all the time, and when you open a book and you're like hovering over it reading it, it makes sense that your spittle and your skin cells and other parts of your DNA would end up in that book. So it's kind of a cool thing to explore um, who touched the book, who licked the book, who mm-hmm. sneezed on the book. Um, you know, historical folks uh, that we whose names we know, like Shakespeare or 
other people we don't know at all. But it's kind of a cool project figuring out like DNA testing um, in, in these old texts. So it's a cool thing. And apparently it's real science. I didn't I didn't think it was I didn't think it was real. And then Jess told me I was wrong. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> did you have anything you wanted to add to that? No. Oh, OK. I thought you were going to say something about that paper you heard that one time. But sure. I mean, yeah, that uh, the 2016 SAA, there was a paper about this kind of um, scholarship uh, and it was fucking fascinating. And yeah, nah, that's yeah, that's what it's it is. Pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I felt a little betrayed by this particular article and I told this to Jess off air <clears throat> that like it uses it invokes Shakespeare's name and Shakespeare's the idea of Shakespeare's DNA in the article title and then like way down at the end of the article it's like well it's unlikely that we will find Shakespeare's actual DNA in these books we can still find the DNA of other randos and I was like really okay so it's slightly misleading although the science behind it apparently is totally solid so that's kind of a cool Mm -hmm. thing to to keep track of just a cool thing Mm -hmm. what's your Shakespeare's bubble gossip Jess uh so the Folgers doing a renovation um which is not new news <laughs> it's not the new news from the new court mm. um but it's recent news it's a couple of weeks out I can't believe we haven't talked about it maybe we have whatever oh is this about retrofitting to make it handi- handicap accessible yeah yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah. yeah 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 I did hear about that yeah so the the Folger uh is gonna do like a giant giant renovation over the next two three years um Mm -hmm. they're closing the reading room in january which is like the fucking worst but whatever i'll just i'll do all of my dissertation research this summer and that is what i will do anyway the the designs for the renovation are online and they look fantastic like when all is said and done the folder is going to be way more accessible and more functional and bigger and more beautiful and it's it's going to be amazing um and it's frankly it's overdue for renovations yeah. so yeah um thrilling thrilling it's thrilling yeah that's really it's really cool and you know yeah. a lot of those buildings in in dc i think are due for some <clears throat> ada retrofitting so yep. so good for the folger for yeah. you know getting it done good yeah. job making it more accessible yeah that's, that's what we want um, and our last bit of Shakespeare bubble gossip is uh, it's looking towards 2020 at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Um, we announced in our gossip segment a few weeks ago, maybe last month, that um, no, it was with Joey Gamble. It was during our Galte episode. Um, they named uh, Bill Roush's successor. Her name is Nataki Garrett. Um, so to follow up on that, uh, they have unveiled their 2020 artistic year. On this, it's the first one under Nataki Garrett's um, artistic leadership. So here's what they are offering. I'm just going to go over the Shakespeare titles. If you want to check out all of their titles, feel free to go to their website and do that. But they're doing uh, a Midsummer Night's Dream, which is mm-hmm. a solid choice anytime mm-hmm. you're under new artistic leadership which i know my own company is doing this year too because mm-hmm. uh, it's a crowd tickler uh, and it brings the people back um they're doing the tempest and that's going to be in their big outdoor theaters and they haven't done that in a while so that's exciting and then there's where is it oh yeah and then i th- i'm not sure if this is part of their translation adaptation project or not but it's called bring down the house and it's a an epic two-part adaptation of the Henry VI trilogy. Oh. 
Yeah, and that that's going to be, cool. be in their black box uh, Thomas Theater. That's their smallest, um, more most flexible space. Sure. So yeah, so again, you know, I think it's apropos, especially since we're talking about Henry VI this week, that people often do these plays in conflation or in you know adaptation uh, things like this. So it's going to be it's an adaptation in in two parts of all three of the Henry Sixes, adapted by Rosa Joshi and Kate. Forgive me. Wisniewski, uh, and it's produced in association with the Upstart Crow Collective. So, and it's, uh, I think, a world premiere. This might be part of their, again, I'm not sure which project this is part of. So if anybody, if any of our friends at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival are listening, please get in touch and correct me. Because I'm going to stop talking now, so I don't completely misinform everyone. But anyway, that is their, that is their Shakespeare docket. They've got, you know, seven or so other plays that they're producing in 2020 because that's what they do Uh, and if you want to check that out you can go to osfashland.org do we have any corrections this week uh i don't think so good good we are right all the time yeah no we're not (laughs) that does it uh thank you so much for listening we hope you leave the podcast more informed than when you started Tune in next week when we complete the canon with Love's Labor's Lost 101 and say our goodbyes for the summer. <laughs> goodbyes. <laughs> oh, it's going to no. be fine. They'll, you'll survive. Our listeners will survive. Everyone will survive. Right. I might not survive, so. but <laughs> I believe the you. rest of you will be fine. <laughs> we'll carry on. It's what Jess would want. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Whamble it out. Dazzle mine eyes, or do I see three suns? Three glorious suns, each one a perfect sun, not separated with the racking clouds, but severed in a pale, clear, shining sky. See, see, they join, embrace, and seem to kiss, as if they vowed some league inviolable. Now they are but one lamp, one light, one sun. In this the heaven figures some event. If you liked this podcast, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Or you can drop us an email at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can find us on Instagram at hurlyburlyshakes. Or at hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shu. You can learn more about him at jonathanshu.com or find his albums on iTunes. All opinions you heard on this podcast are our own and are not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. Got out of jail six months ago. I feel like I'm knocking on Satan's door because to tell the truth, I can't take it no more. Gonna marry me, the first woman I see She's gonna love and do right by me Have a kid, have some family Gonna marry me, the first woman I see It's all very cool. Now I'm just scatting while I wait for you to come back from letting Ginny in and getting coffee. But, like, it's fine. Whatever. Sorry, I needed to top up my coffee. How long had you been blagging on? Oh, like a a minute. Oh, shit, I'm sorry. Maybe not even a minute, like a sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.